But I do want to take you to uh, the end of the book of Matthew, towards the end, Matthew chapter 25. One of the difficulties of kind of doing one-off sermons sometimes is just this notion that really we're just kind of parachuting in. You know, as Mission or Bible Church, we believe context, context, context helps us to understand the meaning so that then properly understood, we can then apply it and live it out. And so here I am just sort of saying, okay, open up your Bible. And there is a context to the passage that we're going to, um, to read and to consider, but I don't have time to give you, we, we haven't preached the first 24 chapters, well, 24 and a half really, but I need to try to give you some semblance of a context for what it is that we're dealing with. So if we're in chapter 25, as Pastor Rick likes to say, what comes before chapter 25? It's chapter 24. It's that Tennessee math right there. In chapter 24, in chapter 24, Jesus and the disciples are, are leaving Jerusalem. As they leave Jerusalem, the disciples are basically extolling the beauty of the temple. Say, look, look, or look at the beauty of the stones and these buildings. And they walk out of the, the city and they start to head up the Mount of Olives. And Jesus decides, you know what, I need to, I need to talk to them. I need to talk to them about these stones, these beautiful stones, and what's going to happen to them, and frankly, even just what God's plan is for the world as a whole. And so Jesus begins to relate coming judgments to them near and far. They've sat on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus begins what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse, because it's a time of teaching that takes place as they're sitting together on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is replying to their questions about, Lord, when, when are these things going to take place and these things going to be that you just said in terms of the, the temple being destroyed and all that kind of stuff? And so Jesus begins relating coming judgments, both near and far. Near, relating specifically to the temple, as they were just discussing. Far, relating to eschatological events. And you see terms like end times, you see terms like fulfillment of the age, day of the Lord, day of judgment, all those types of things. And those refer to the whole grand plan of God as He brings about the fulfillment of His plan and the establishment of Christ's eternal reign over the kingdom of God. <clears throat> In light of that discussion that they're having, as Jesus then relays these, these the contents of chapter 24 up through verse 31, which pertain to destruction and the tribulation and, then, and, and the return of Christ, Jesus then gives them lessons as well. Because, see, Jesus is not giving them just a lesson in academic eschatology. Jesus is saying, I want you to know something of what is to come so that you can live now differently than you might have before. So that in light of what's to come, you can live in such and such a way. And so some of the lessons that he gives in chapter both 24 and 25 include the fig tree lesson, which conveys the need for watching for signs of Christ's coming. He says, look, you're able to tell when a fig tree is about to bear or when it's about to bud because of what happens to it, because you observe, oh, look, the fig tree is starting to have leaves, and so therefore what follows after that is fruit eventually. 
<clears throat> so he says, just like you are capable of being aware of that and watching for those signs, well, watch for the signs that I've described to you. The disciples, Jesus does not want them to live in blindness as to what's going on around them at a macro level. He also gives them a lesson about readiness and preparedness, not just watching and observing, but living then in readiness and preparedness. And he does that with an illustration of a neglectful servant who goes around beating his other servants, and then the master comes and things go badly for him because he wasn't living ready or prepared. And it's also the, the parable of the, the ten virgins. Some had enough oil and some did not come prepared for a long wait. And they missed out. So there's that lesson. Then there's also the lesson of the, the need for current stewardship of your responsibilities and abilities as illustrated by the parable of the talents. The king gives talents to be invested on his behalf while he's away, and when he comes back, he expects those talents, abilities to have been invested well for his sake. <clears throat> I wish we had time to read all of this discourse slowly and to let the weight of the words sink in, to, to really even just put ourselves in the proverbial sandals of the disciples and feel what they felt as they sat there listening to, the, to what came about from them saying, Lord, look at how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus says, you want to know what's going to happen to both the temple and even the whole world? Jesus relays that and then says, so also, in light of that, now live in certain ways. And I know there are many interpretive questions around, especially chapter 24. But for now, I'd encourage you sometimes just, just to read it and to put the, the theological intricacies and the nuances aside a little bit and just consider them as a person, a follower of the Messiah as those disciples would have been. And the severity and the sobriety of the teaching about what's to come, coupled then with the strong exhortations to live ready, to live prepared, and to live aware, Jesus is basically telling them, don't just cruise on like life actually consists of what you see and experience now. He says there is a reality, an ultimate reality coming, and you need to live now in light of that. Be ready for what's to come. So, as Jesus wraps up the time of teaching with his disciples, and this is the last time of teaching that Matthew records prior to relaying the story of how Jesus then went to the cross and ultimately the resurrection. Jesus wraps up his time of teaching with a topic of ultimate and eternal judgment. <clears throat> and there are debates among interpreters about where in the eschatological timeline these things take place. Is it right before Jesus establishes the millennial kingdom? Is it afterwards in the final last judgment as that takes place and all are consigned to their ultimate destination of heaven or hell? Or is it perhaps, as often happens in the Bible, sort of a, a compressed statement of view that contains the truths of both of those notions without caring necessarily to chop it up and lay it all out in a nice little time frame? I lean that way. But the important thing to remember about what we're doing right now and what we should do every time you and I come before God's Word, we are trying to learn why did Jesus speak those words? 
And why did Matthew record those words and put them there? And the intent of those two things, why Jesus spoke those words and why Matthew put them there, is crystal clear. The intent is this. Jesus wants the eschatological realities of his teaching to not promote academic intrigue for the doctoral students sitting at his feet. They're not there. These are just his followers who he's trying to set the right perspective for going forward, and especially in light of the fact that he's going to die and be raised, and, 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 and ultimately it's going to kind of feel like everything's falling apart. Jesus sought practical and ethical impact in the lives of his disciples as he shares this story with them. Jesus paints a picture for some of his closest compatriots here, and it's designed to resonate in their minds in the days ahead as he is killed and resurrected. It's a picture that's designed to compel them to live aware, to live ready, and to live prepared. So let's read Matthew 25, verse 31, with that as a little bit of a context. He says this, But, or now, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. <clears throat> these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You pray with me? Father, please give us grace as we consider this passage. 
who wants to be like your disciples, both made aware of your plan, but also spurred on, provoked to live then in a certain way. So help us to understand, help me to be clear, work the work of your spirit for salvation, for sanctification, as may be needed in our midst now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we've just read, Jesus is essentially telling a story. He's saying, look, this is what's to come. He relays all the events of Matthew chapter 24 and then half of 25. And then he says, now, when the Son of Man comes, here's what it's going to look like. And he describes this scenario. He essentially tells a story of ultimate and eternal judgment. And as we peek into this story ourselves, we're going to see four scenes of a coming judgment which highlight Christian compassion. Four scenes of a coming judgment which highlight Christian compassion. Here's the first scene. The first scene is this. It's that of a courtroom. There is a courtroom in which a judge comes and judgment is rendered and a case is dismissed. Verdicts are given. And this courtroom... This is a certainty. Notice what it, how verse 31 starts. Now or but, when. This is not now if, or now should, or now perchance. Now or but, when. We already knew based on chapter 4 verse 36, it says, but of that day, uh, chapter 24 verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So we know that this day, this hour is not to be parsed out and to be put on a pen on a map and to say, that's the day. We don't know when. But when is the word? Not if, not maybe. This is a certainty. And in that certainty, there is a judge who comes. The judge is the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to Himself in this story as He has referred to Himself multiple times throughout the Gospel as the Son of Man. It's a little less uh, politically provocative than trying to call Himself, imagine this, the Son of God. That would have provoked much trouble. But in, in calling Himself multiple times through the Gospel the Son of Man, He both connects himself to mankind in their humanity because he was God become man. And he also connects himself to the the, the prophecy in Daniel where one like a son of man is seen to be standing. And so there's humility and identity with messianic prophecy. But if you look down at verse 34, Jesus referring to himself in the third person says, then the king will say to those, And so this Son of Man is also King, the one who is the judge. What would this King be like? Look over in Revelation with me real quick. Flip over to Revelation 1, if you will, or scroll over. That's a long scroll, page over. See, we're about to enter kind of into like the the, the Christmas season, right? Yeah. 
baby born in a manger. All right, well, don't be fooled, okay? The baby is no longer a baby. And when the Son of Man comes as king, this is what he will be like. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. You can see further descriptions of him in Revelation 18 and 19. This is not the baby born in a manger. This is the coming, conquering, victorious, all-sovereign, all-authoritative king who is coming as judge. The king coming as judge. And the setting of this courtroom is this. Glory. 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 Because the Son of Man comes in His glory, in His resplendence, in His shining, in His brilliance. And He sits on His throne of glory or His glorious throne. So the throne has brilliance, has shining, has resplendence. And the Son of Man who has all that sits on this and is just shining, glory, brilliant, resplendence everywhere. And then He comes... All the angels with him. You ever, you ever stop on a phrase that you read in the Bible and just be like, how many is that? How many is all the angels? We can just kind of read it and be like, ah, it's, uh, 20, 30. It's a lot, right? I mean, imagine you, we know what one angel can do, but this is all the angels. Myriads upon myriads upon myriads legions of celestial troops at Jesus the King's disposal as He comes to render judgment. It's incredible. Everything about this scenario, this courtroom, screams majesty, brilliance, weight, and transcendency. And with such a setting, who could argue with the one who gives a verdict? Who's going to say to the one who came in glory and sits on a glorious throne and is king and has legions and myriads and all the angels with him, um, excuse me, I object. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So in this courtroom, we have a certainty and a judge and a setting, and we also have the judged. It's in verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. We saw this word, all nations, all peoples, in chapter 24, verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And so just as the gospel has gone out to all peoples, everywhere, comprehensively, so all peoples, everywhere, comprehensively, will be gathered and brought before the king, the son of man, the judge. There's no exception. We 
Which brings us to scene two, the verdict. All the nations are brought to the king. Verse 32, he will separate them from one another. He puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So as all the nations, all the peoples are coming to the king, the king says, you sheep, you goat, sheep, 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 goat, 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 right, left, separate, division. Some are designated sheep to the right. Culturally, I mean, we, we resonate with this, right? Culturally, back then, especially though, the right hand was the hand of favor, the hand of blessing, the hand of strength. And culturally, the left hand would have been the, the hand, the side of weakness, of condemnation. And we, we don't want to get sidetracked, you know, how does a sheep compare to a goat? Well, sheep have softer wool and so it's a little bit more useful, but the goats have some good milk and sheep are tasty. Sheeps, sheep are tastier. Because trying to parse out the difference between a sheep and a goat is not the point here. Okay? They were both used in flocks in Israel, used for a reason, because they were valuable flock animals. The point is this common notion. Think about how Jesus so often taught. Right? He would often, as he was teaching, just point. Think about the birds. Ah, look at the flowers. Think about how God clothes them. You know how he does this. He said, look at the sower as he sows his seed. Some fall on the rocky places and some fall on good soil. And so he's, he's constantly drawing illustrations from, from scenes that would be so familiar to the disciples or to the listeners or whoever this is. And so the disciples would have been so familiar with this notion of division according to kind. Because although uh, sheep and goats would often be in the same herd together, they wouldn't typically feed together. The goats tended to be a little bit mean and abusive in the midst of that. And they didn't even sleep together because sheep actually need a colder temperature. So goats would have to be put somewhere a little bit warmer. And so on a regular basis, shepherds would separate the sheep and the goats. Not because goats are bad. Yeah, that was bad, wasn't it? My wife is so ashamed right now. Not because goats are inherently bad, though, but because the judge divides and separates. John Broaddus, in his commentary, actually gives a personal anecdote along those lines. He says, the morning after reaching Palestine, so he went to visit Israel, and he says, the morning, maybe some of you will see this and you'll be able to resonate uh, in January. The morning after reaching Palestine, when setting out from Romley across the plain of Sharon, we saw a shepherd leading forth a flock of white sheep and black goats, all mingled as they followed him. Presently, he turned aside into a little green valley, and he stood facing the flock. And when a sheep came up, he tapped it with his long staff on the right side of his head, and the sheep quickly went to the right. Then a goat came up, and he tapped it on the other side, and it went to his left. Thus, the Savior's image presented itself exactly before our eyes. The, the disciples would have seen this a hundred times. And it makes sense, right, Like that, that Jesus is going to parallel the righteous with the sheep because he has called himself the good shepherd. He has called, he has paralleled sheep to his people in the past. And so in the midst of understanding the division, he's going to say, okay, the sheep are the righteous ones and the goats are the unrighteous 
But the point is the division, the dividing verdict. You, there, you, there, you, there, all of you, there, dividing verdict. Notice that there's no argument and there's no defense. There's no, there's no pushback, there's no comeback, there's no anything. It's just the verdict of the Son of Man, the King, rendering His judgment. And these are contrasting verdicts. Look at verse 34 with me. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then look in verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And we have such a contrast. These are completely parallel little portions of Scripture, but they're parallel in contrast. They're parallel in being opposites. See, to the sheep on his right, Jesus gives an, uh, an incredible invitation. Hey, come. Come. And then to the goats on his left, he gives an utter rejection. Depart. Go away from me. He refers to the sheep on his right as blessed of the Father. He refers to the goats on his left as accursed ones. Both of those are not necessarily because, you know, because, okay, I was bad, so I this. I was good, so I this. That's not the idea. The idea is what they are reaping right now is the fruit of their state prior because the sheep have been blessed and that continues to have effect. And so now at the judgment, they reap the reward of that of eternal life. Whereas the goats have been under a curse, a curse of unbelief, a curse of separation, a curse of refusal even. And as a result of that, they are given the verdict of depart. He says to the sheep on the right, inherit the kingdom prepared. Inherit the kingdom prepared. And he says to the goats, on the left, depart into the fire which has been prepared. You see the parallelism? You see the tremendous study in contrasts? As he talks to the sheep, those who have been blessed of the Father, those sons and daughters are invited to come and to partake, to enter into the fullness of all that they've waited for. This is a kingdom prepared from before the foundation of the world. It's not an accident. It's not an adjustment. It's not a, a schedule change. This is God's plan, and this is the fulfillment, and this is what will come. It may refer in part to the millennial kingdom, but most fully it refers to eternal life. That's how the whole story ends. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so as he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. This is the kingdom of this is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of the presence of God enjoying the new heavens and the new earth in perfection. We read a little bit about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to flip there, you can or you can just listen. 1 Peter chapter 1 I can get there. 
First Peter chapter 1 has this notion of inheritance and receiving, being chosen, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father, in verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, here's the blessed of the Father, according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to encourage you. Um, he- heaven is to be desired. Not, not just because of, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to be super spiritual and, and, and say, well, I want to be in the presence of God. That's very true. And, and the thing is, the, it's the presence of God that saturates every nuance of the new heavens and the new earth that makes it alluring. But as God describes eternity to his people, to his followers, he says, you want to be here. This is a new heavens, a new earth. Anything that you enjoy in righteousness here, God's creation will blow that out of the water. Because there will be no sin, there will be no pain, no tears. We will be with, with one another, so you might as well start to learn to get along. You will be with God. He will be rewarding His faithful servants. He says, you want this. This isn't a grit your teeth and say, yeah, I know the spiritual thing is to do is to say I want to be. No, 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 this is, this is the best thing ever is designed to be rewarding and alluring. There's responsibilities to have, joyful activities to carry out. And on the other hand, the accursed ones, okay, those who have been under the curse of unbelief, even as Galatians 3 says, under the curse of the law, and they don't have the relationship with Christ and the forgiveness of Christ that brings them out of that state, and so they continue on in that, they will depart into eternal fire. And that fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, that's an interesting note. Did you hear a little bit of that difference right there? The kingdom has been prepared from the foundation of the world for you. The fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 19 and 20, you can see the the actual execution of all of that there. The fire has not been prepared for these people, but they have earned it by their unbelief. Sinners earn condemnation. That's a hard truth, and it's not a very popular truth these days. But outside of faith, outside of Christ, you are under a curse of sin. And that is the destination of those under the curse. Fully deserved. So that's scene two. First the courtroom, then the verdict. And here's the evidence. Like I said, there was no arguments. There there were no defenses. And Jesus presents the evidence here. We walked all the way through that. 
And the first, as he refers to the sheep, right? Their relationship with Christ was evidenced by the compassionate care for Christians in need that they had. I mean, again, Jesus actually says to them, he says, hey, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for, and then he lists all these reasons. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you ministered to me. And, and the sheep are not like, yeah, yeah, we knew it the whole time and we were strategizing that way. No, they say, what? When? When did this happen? We didn't know we were doing that necessarily. Jesus said, ah, but as much as you did it, as much as you did it to these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So this really is kind of a crux of the passage. Who, who are the brothers? So keep in mind, Jesus is painting a picture, right? And he says, okay, here comes the Son of Man. Here comes the King. All the nations are gathered to him, and he separates all the nations into the sheep and the goats. So there's a king, a sheep, the sheep, and the goats. And, and there, there's some interpretations that sort of try to like interpret a third group of people there. Okay? And I don't, I don't see it. I think the right interpretation is to say you have the righteous, you have the accursed, you have the king, and that he is saying to them, as you treated... Christians in need around you, that is done to me. And that's not, it's not far-fetched by any stretch of the means. Back in Matthew 12, a really interesting scenario happened. Jesus was teaching. Somebody comes up to him, chapter 12, verse 47. Somebody comes up to him and says, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him, and he said, who, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And in his conversations with his disciples, so often he ends up talking to them about how they deal with their brothers, with their fellow disciples. So who are the brothers that Jesus is referring to here? I think he's just referring to believers. He's referring to those who do the will of the Father. He's talking about missionaries. He's talking about pastors. He's talking about each one of you who sits here in faith in Christ. He's talking about the persecuted brothers in Sudan and in China and in Afghanistan and those in Europe, Ukraine, Russia. All of these are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And then he even just kind of takes it a step further, and he says, even the least of these, if you have uh, italics in your Bible like I do, then even and of them is all italicized. So what he's saying is, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, you did those ministries, to one of these brothers of mine, the least, even the most humble, even the most dirty, even the most needy, even the most helpless. 
in ministering to those brothers and sisters, you minister to Jesus Christ himself, the Son of Man, the coming King. And so a relationship with Jesus is demonstrated by treatment of the family of God. And again, note that they didn't necessarily have this intention. They weren't walking around with a checklist saying, okay, I want to I earn my way to salvation, so I want to go visit the needy because I know that Jesus... They, they, weren't, they weren't even thinking in categories like that. They were kind to these brothers. They were kind to these sisters because they were in the family of God together. So that's the sheep. On the other hand, the goats evidence that they have no relationship with Christ because they had no compassionate care for Christians in need. This is entirely, note this, this is entirely a sin of omission. Now to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it's sin. Sins of omission exist. They gave no care to Jesus because no care was given to the needy believers around them. And again, they weren't necessarily even aware that they were or were not doing it, but it evidences the relationship. And that's an important nuance. It's an important understanding. They, nobody was earning their way to inheritance of the kingdom here. This is not a legalistic earning of salvation. Great. You did enough visiting of the sick. Great. You brought enough meals to those in prison. Great. You fed those who were hungry. Great. It's not a legalistic earning of salvation because that would be contrary to other passages, other, uh, other teaching that Jesus himself even gave. Now look at, look at John 11, verse 25. I think we have time. Let's go there. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will Never die. Belief in Christ is the starting point for relationship that fleshes out in its relationship with brothers and sisters around. Evidence of relationship with Him. This is why Jesus said to those who even, you know, were able to do some miracles in Matthew 7, He says, depart from me because I never knew you. You didn't know me. I didn't know you. You may have done some stuff, but there was no relationship of faith. It resonates with what James 2 says, that genuine faith manifests itself in righteous works. It doesn't save you, but it shows. It demonstrates. And so this compassionate care for believers around them was fueled by their love for and relationship with the Savior. One commentator, David Turner, says, The faith of the individual humans is tested by their treatment of the community that embodies and extends the message of Jesus. The sheep are those whose faith is demonstrated by works that help needy fellow believers. And the goats are those who lack such helpful works. And that demonstrates they are not true followers of Jesus, whether they profess to be or not. So how does this work for us? Well, I mean, we need to consider who are the brothers and sisters of God around us. Well, most immediately, it's our church. It's our church family. And when we serve those in our church, this is the beauty of it. We 
do it unto Christ. So directly that if we take a meal to a sick person, we take a meal to Jesus. And it resonates into eternity. Do you think about that when those, when those sign-up sheets get passed around? Or is it, ah, oh, man, another sick person. Oh, another baby shower. Well, what if we start to kind of think about it? Well, hey, I serve this person in need in my church. I'm, 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 I'm literally, sounds weird, throwing a baby shower for Christ. The service of our brothers and sisters is service unto the king. It's, it's astounding when you provide meals for the sick in your midst, when you pay the bill for someone who has a need that you know about. Even when you serve in children's church and there happens to be a need down there. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. When you serve in children's church and you take care of those kids or you help in nursery and you serve then the brothers and sisters who come and can, can focus, can worship, can breathe, <laughs> can, can just engage with fellowship and with worship of God, you are serving Christ Himself. We have a meeting for those who are doing foster care or adoption or interested in that, and there's some child care need for that, and frankly, there's, there's opportunities even for, for being able to come alongside those who are doing foster care or wanting to pursue adoption, and as we seek to serve one another in those things, we seek to, we do serve Jesus Himself. It, it takes it so much out of the realm of just obligation or duty, or here comes another sign-up sheet, or here comes... And it puts it into the realm of, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting my affection for Christ. And that's, that's just beautiful. That, that, to me, helps significantly to change perspective. There's the idea of just even outside of our, our immediate church family, but in the community as a whole, other churches, other believers that we encounter in need. Same thing goes. What about our nation, the world as a whole? Sometimes the elders will bring uh, missionaries through and they'll be able to communicate what's going on in their, in their ministry and in their lives and they present needs. Do we just do it because well, needy missionaries always complaining about not having this or that? Well, no. These are, these are brothers and sisters in Christ seeking to spread His gospel and spread His word and when we host or feed or provide or any of that, we do it to Jesus Christ, the King. I hope, that, I hope that blows your mind. I hope that gives you a different set of glasses with which to look at one another, at opportunities, at considering things around the world in terms of like, okay, the, the hurricane in Florida and an awareness of the brothers and sisters in need down there, the, the situation like, like what we took the offering for with Ukraine and with Russia and to seek to meet the needs of, of the believers over there. And we were as leadership so blessed and so encouraged by your generosity in that. And you ministered to Christ. 
to Christ himself. It's not just, I'm just going just to write a check. I know I'm supposed to be generous. It's, it's ministry to Christ himself. And it will come into account. Not as earning, but as validating. It's astounding. You'll notice I say, which highlight Christian compassion. I think it's important to just realize some, some ways in which it highlights it. Because it's not like this is an imperative. Hey, go have compassion. All right, but I think that's a takeaway, and that's the first one, is that it brings the, the unawareness that we need to show Christian compassion. It also brings to awareness, though, the ability to receive Christian compassion. Let people serve Jesus by serving you. Don't put on a stoic face. I got it all under control. I don't need anything. I don't need any help or service. No, let people serve Christ by serving you. The third is it brings to awareness our rest when we or others are mistreated. We can rest because the king will take care of it all. The king will take care of his people. He will render ultimate judgment, and we can rest in that. The last scene here is the dismissal. There is eternal punishment in verse 46, and there is eternal Life, the goats, the accursed go into eternal punishment. The sheep, the righteous, the blessed of the Father go into eternal life. And passages like this make it clear that there, there are parallels between the destinations of all. Eternal is both qualitative and quantitative. Eternal life and eternal punishment are inextricably linked here. If you change one, you change the other. If you diminish one, you diminish the other. So we listen to Leon Morris in the Pillar New Testament commentary. He says this, Many in modern times strongly oppose the doctrine of eternal punishment. And none of us really likes it. But Haman points out that the net result of the elimination of the teaching of eternal punishment from the Bible would be the loss of the gospel. Not too many people would be overly upset at the alternatives of eternal life and annihilation. And so, to eliminate eternal punishment is to extract the teeth of the law and its presentation of a holy God. The blessing of the gospel can only be retained if the law is seen as the completely serious will of the holy God to whom sin is grievous rebelling, rebellion, requiring his punishment if it is not forgiven. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross and endure the wrath of God on behalf of those blessed of the Father. And in contrast, the destination of the righteous is to be life eternal. The same adjective is applied to both the punishment and the reward. Jesus is not speaking of some small experience that would be but for a moment, but of that which has no end. He leaves his hearers in no doubt as to the solemnity of what he's saying. Eternal issues are involved. And this is so for both those on the right and on the left. And so the question, just as we kind of stop for a moment and self-assess, we don't know the time that the judge will come. We don't. So if it were now, if it were tonight, if it were tomorrow morning, what would the fruit of your life say? And specifically, what would your affection for Christians, your heart of compassion or lack thereof to the needs of the brothers and sisters around you and across the world be? 
every need is not a demand upon your time and money, but your, your heart, your affection, your, your compassion, your, your, your just, as Pastor Rick you know, explained the other day, the splankna, your guts of just how you feel in your deepest core of a person when you hear about or you see a need in believers around you. What does it reflect? And again, as we consider this, eternal punishment, eternal life, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't take this and think, well, I can just go and I can try and do enough good to to, to somehow be one of those sheep. That's not going to happen. You must see the weight of your sins to, to understand that eternal fire awaits as the righteous punishment of those who are condemned. But to see that Jesus offers forgiveness by his death and in his resurrection and says, just confess, put your faith in me, and you will be blessed of the Father, and that will come out in your life, and I will change you, and I will mold you, and I will make it so that this is how your life looks, and you'll be able to see, look, this is the result of it. Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So if you have not made that decision, if you have not confessed and put your faith in Christ, I would urge you to do it today, right now, because we don't know the time. You may say, ah, that might be later. I can deal with that later. We don't know the time. Let that also, if you are a believer, let that fuel your life. I don't do this because I gotta. I don't do this because it's just what I'm supposed to do. I do this because all of these things are a reflection of my walk with Christ, my affection for the person of Jesus, not the Christian way of life, the person of Jesus. And that's, that's, that's an incredible, incredible privilege I want to close with this warning in 2 Peter 3. He says this in verse 3. He says, know this first of all. And this is because people tend to, tend to forget, tend to get distracted, tend to get sidetracked. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Come to repentance today. And as a believer, find the joy, the wonder of being able to live out your relationship with Christ as you live out your relationship with those who have needs around you.